Let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The center of Christianity is Jesus. He is God's Son, come to bring the kingdom of heaven through his death and resurrection. Through the free, unmerited grace of the Father, we repent and believe in his Son, receiving an eternal relationship with the Father now in our lives and in the age to come. Christianity is all about Jesus. And that has been the entire point of our sermon series in Mark. Not to look for tips for living, top ten best ways to live your Christian life now. Not religious self-help. But to see again and again and again that the scriptures reveal Jesus as our Savior and our Redeemer, as God's only Son. Now, why do we need to reiterate this point? Why is it necessary? How could one possibly conceive of Christianity without Jesus? Well, I would respond to that by saying, look around. Because even confessed believers in Jesus are constantly presenting faith in Christ as something other than just that. There's a recent poll completed by Pew in the U.S., where they asked Americans what they believed, uh, or sorry, who came to mind when they thought about Christianity or different denominations. Well, when asked about Catholicism, the person who came to mind first was Pope Francis, not Jesus. Now, before the evangelicals in the room get all high and mighty, when asked about Protestant evangelicalism, they thought of Billy Graham, not Jesus. In fact, there was only one category, one religion, where the first person that came to mind was Jesus. And no, it wasn't Anglicanism. We didn't even make the list. It was Judaism. Not even Christianity in general. My point here is simple. We live with the constant temptation to separate Jesus from our lives. To make something else or someone else the point of our faith. To make it about feeling good and doing good so God will bless us. And so the point has been to pull us back to Jesus over and over and over again because it is all about him. And there is perhaps no moment that shows the centrality and uniqueness of Jesus more than his death and resurrection. The very topics we'll be looking at these next two weeks as we close our series. This week, we consider his death. Looking at three crucial things, three crucial parts of our passage. The cross, the curtain, and the confession. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up to Mark 15, beginning in verse 21. For many Christians, this is a very familiar Passage, and of course, the challenge of familiarity is that we can start missing the details. 
We know the story, and so we don't look at it closely enough, but what we miss is that the details convey something very important. And in this case, the details are showing us the magnitude of what is happening on the cross. First thing we want to notice is verse 33. We read this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, in that time, the sixth hour is what we call noon. And so darkness fell from noon till 3 p.m. This isn't just clouds covering the sky has been depicted in certain uh, paintings and, and images of this moment. But it's an unnatural darkness. It's a darkness that would make you take notice and wonder what exactly was going on. And that's what we should be doing too. Notice and wonder what is happening. What is being conveyed by this darkness? Well, throughout scripture... Darkness is a symbol of chaos and disorder, like in Genesis 1, where God brings order out of disorder. He brings order to the chaos as he creates the world. It's also a symbol of the Father's judgment. Like in Egypt, when the ninth plague, the plague of darkness fell, which occurred right before the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. This unnatural darkness that falls on the world is meant to show us just what is happening to Jesus. He is taking sin, the root of all disorder and chaos, upon himself. He is taking the Father's wrath against sin squarely upon his shoulders. This was not a natural event, as some have tried to brush it off as. This is not an eclipse as some have argued. It's a fulfillment of what the prophet Amos wrote. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. The very details that Mark includes shows us the severity of what what Jesus is experiencing. And it is all to deal with sin and judgment. And it leads to this gut-wrenching cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the sinless Savior, has become sin for us and takes the wrath of God upon himself. And it is brutal. And make no mistake, this can be uncomfortable for us to deal with. Perhaps it's even uncomfortable to talk about. The idea of a suffering Savior does not fit with our thinking. And it didn't for the people of that time either. We all want conquering heroes. This morning we heard the account of Jesus being mocked and taunted being asked to prove who he is by coming down from the cross. Death on a cross didn't fit with a savior. That's why Muslims who hold Jesus to be a prophet only claim that he was replaced on the cross and never suffered. It's why an early heresy popped up that changed the words from Jesus that, that he cried out from my God, my God to my power, O oh power. The idea that he would be experiencing this was not in their thinking. 
Perhaps it's why the results of that poll were what they were. Why when people think of Christianity and denominations, they don't think of Jesus or the cross, but someone or something else, something more palatable. We don't like the idea of a suffering Savior. And so we want to set aside the cross. Put it off to the side. Mainly because it shows us the serious seriousness of sin and the horrendous cost that needed to be paid. The idea of the cross has been offensive from the moment it happened. As Paul himself wrote, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We cannot lose the severity and the centrality of the cross. Without it, sin is not dealt with. Without it, the wrath of God remains unsatisfied. But thanks be to God, Jesus truly did suffer. He truly bore the wrath and the judgment that this unnatural darkness symbolized and his cry of dereliction vocalized. Thanks be to God for it. As uncomfortable as it might be for us to hear, thanks be to God for it. And thanks be to God, for by it we are offered what is symbolized in the second thing we're going to look at, the curtain. As is typical of Mark, he gives us incredible theological meaning in depth in as few as words as possible. He's a get right to the point kind of guy, right? No messing around, no, no flowery poetry, just the words. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There it is. There's the words. This is incredibly good news, friends. This is life-changing news right here. But we won't know that unless we know what the curtain means, what it is. And for that, we need to read our Old Testament. Another reason why we want to read our Old Testament, folks. All scripture points to Jesus. It's good. Read it. The curtain was found in the temple. And it separated the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, from all the other areas. And it was the place where only the high priest, the one who was considered the most holy man in Israel, could go. And even as the most holy man in Israel, he could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he could only enter after a lamb had been sacrificed for his sins. His sins needed to be atoned for before he could walk through that curtain. And it's all because the Holy of Holies, the place that's sectioned off by this curtain, was the place where God dwelt. And to enter into the presence of God without having your sin atoned for, that's not a wise plan. What Mark says in few words, the author of Hebrews spells out for us explicitly. He writes, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, of, by the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ's sacrifice, he would go on to explain, opened the holy places for us. 
that since Jesus died bearing the penalty of sin, the curtain is open and we are now able by grace through faith to enter into the holy place where God himself dwells. The relationship that was lost in the fall is remade all because of Jesus. And the curtain is open, we could say, for all types of people. Look at who Mark highlights in this narrative. They are not the people that would typically have been highlighted positively in that day and age. The Gentile centurion, the ritually unclean oppressor of the people of Israel. There is no way he could be in the presence of a holy God, and yet here he is being highlighted. We'll speak more about him in a moment. We have this amazingly faithful group of women who cared for Jesus during his earthly life and stood faithfully by him at his death. Neither they nor the centurion would be the people expected to be highlighted for faithfulness in that culture. To be highlighted by a gospel writer. They were outsiders. But Jesus makes the way for outsiders. He makes the way for insiders too. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the ruling council. Hard to get more insider than that. Risks everything to provide Jesus with a tomb. His standing, perhaps even his life, to honor this one who had died. Insiders and outsiders displaying incredible faithfulness, incredible displays of faith in Christ. That is who Jesus made the way for. By his grace and faith, the curtain is opened, and now all people with eyes to see and ears to hear and tongues to confess that Jesus is Lord can walk through that open curtain can be in the presence of the Father, in right relationship with Him, all because Jesus' sacrifice atoned for our sins. The curtain is torn in two. Completely open. We must not forget that. Because here's the thing. Here's the temptation. We want to go to the curtain and we want to start stitching it back up again. We do it by making entry into the presence of God as something other than faith in Christ. What we really want it to be, what we really think it is, is, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, but you can't get through the curtain, you can't get into the presence of the Father, unless you've done X amount of good works, and you've given X amount to charity, and you need so many days without sin, because you need to show how holy you are. You need to prove you're worthy. Prove that you're good enough to walk through, that you're holy enough to be in the presence of God. Do it. Get up, go do it. And it leads us to think that there are some, or perhaps even ourselves, whom entering into the presence of God is an impossibility because we aren't holy enough. And we know we haven't done enough. 
Jesus finished the work, friends. Jesus finished the work. Not you, not me, Jesus. The curtain is open. For your family member that lives in complete rebellion. For your co-worker who scoffs at the idea of God. For the scandal-ridden politician, the drug addict, the homeless person, the white-collar criminal who masks their broken life with money. For those we love and those we despise. Once Jesus opens their eyes, there is none who cannot come in. The curtain is open completely. Not halfway with the rest laying on us open. Jesus and Jesus alone has made the way and he opened it entirely. All the the moral living and the fruit-filled life, it comes after. After the confession that changes lives. The confessions of Romans 10. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's the last thing we want to touch on this morning. The confession. Throughout this narrative, we have different groups of people, different people highlighted positively and negatively. We have this group of people that we hear about mocking and deriding Jesus. Assuming that his presence on the cross is evidence that he's a pretender. And even when he cries out, we have those that assume that something miraculous is about to happen. That Elijah might come and bring him down from the cross, not realizing something miraculous is happening. And all of these misinterpretations, they come from the insiders, from God's people, Israel. It's the Gentile centurion who gets it 100% right. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Note the posture of the centurion. He stood facing Jesus. He sees and hears how Jesus dies and it leads him to confess what had never been confessed before. Others have said that Jesus is the Messiah, but the centurion is the first to say that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is divine. And it comes through watching him die. Through seeing him on the cross. Not through a healing or stilling a storm. Not through feeding a crowd with scraps or even raising someone from the dead. It is through the cross. Through watching Jesus die that his eyes are open and his tongue confesses. There is no chance he's going to mistake Christianity to be about someone or something other than Jesus. He stood facing him. His eyes are upon Jesus. And this is a centurion. His profession is fighting and death. 
He would have witnessed and participated in countless deaths, and in all likelihood, this would not have been the first crucifixion he had stood guard over. And so it tells us that there is something different about this crucifixion. Something about this death that reveals who Jesus is. It is utterly unique. When we look at the whole account, when we see the darkness, hear the cry of dereliction, the cry of giving himself up, the silence in the face of mocking, all of it is different. And it is the one who stands closest to Jesus, who stands closest to the cross, who gets it. That's why we can't set aside the cross. Without the death of Christ, Christianity is not Christianity. It's why we can't soften the reality of the cross, of what Jesus willingly takes upon himself. When we do that, we might believe in something, but it ain't Christianity. It ain't Jesus. It becomes about something or someone else. We need to stand and look at him. We need to see it all, just as the centurion did. No other religion says God came to take on flesh, to live the perfect life, and then suffer death to be the atoning sacrifice for all people. Jesus is utterly unique, and his death shows us that. That is what the centurion saw and confessed. What do you see? Jesus is different, friends. He's completely unique. He is one of one. He's not just another religious teacher. He's not the first among equals of the world's religious greats. He is the Lord and King. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. The centurion confessed it at the cross. What do you confess? When you think of Christianity, is it the Pope or Billy Graham that come to mind? Is it a prayer book or a church building? Is it the hip and cool pastor who looks just as comfortable in skinny jeans as he does in a pulpit? I will never fit in skinny jeans, just to be clear. (laughs) When you think of Christianity, what do you see? Do you see a Savior who loved you enough to set aside his glory and bear the weight of your and all sin so that you might live in right relationship with the Father? You might have life. What do you see? What do you confess? Who do you confess? Dear friends, the crucifixion of Jesus is the moment that the gospel and all history has been building toward. It is the moment along with the resurrection that changes everything. Who do you confess? Let us ever confess shoulder to shoulder with the centurion that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Son of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus is the only Son of God, and he died for us. And as we will talk about next week, he is alive and risen for us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise that Jesus truly did suffer and die for us and that he is risen and alive and reigning and interceding for us. Father, help us to never allow anything else to be what we put our faith in. That Jesus would be at the center of our hearts, our lives, our worship, our belief. You would correct us when we are walking astray from that. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, open our hearts and eyes to you each and every day and the hearts and eyes of those we love who don't know you. That we might confess, along with the centurion, that truly Jesus is the Son of God. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.